I'm always amazed at how the mind makes connections based on similar words and ideas. The other night, my family was sitting around the dinner table, and I started singing a song that had the lyrics, If I could, I would, in them. Hannah, our five-year-old, didn't know the song, but she didn't miss a beat. Immediately, she started singing another song, this one by Simon and Garfunkel, with the lyrics, I'd rather be a hammer than a nail. Yes, I would. If I could, I only would. Not wanting to miss this wonderful teaching moment, I said, you know, there was one person who would rather be a nail than a hammer. And she said, Jesus? Actually, something similar is happening when the New Testament writers look back at today's passage from the fourth servant song in Isaiah and see the striking connections to the life of Jesus. The Gospels make it clear that the glory of Jesus is inextricably tied up with his suffering and death. In fact, John's Gospel points to Jesus on the cross and says, Here is God in all his glory. So when the brothers Zebedee come boldly asking for a seat on either side of Jesus in his glory, Jesus says, in effect, you have no idea what you're asking for. As the story unfolds, we find out what these brothers didn't know, that Jesus' throne of glory was the cross, and those on his right and left enjoyed not honors, but the same shameful death. As we seek to follow Jesus, I sometimes wonder if we know what we're asking for. Jesus tells the sons of Zebedee that following him means taking on the role of a servant, imitating his life of self-sacrificial service. What becomes clear as we follow the life of Jesus to its climactic end, when he offers his life as a ransom for many, is that his vocation was to fulfill the role of the suffering servant spoken of in the prophet Isaiah, a role that would embody the vocation of Israel and the paradox of mercy through judgment. But this story, which finds its climax in the self-offering of Jesus, began, as most good stories do, in the beginning. God had a vocation for humanity, a calling to reflect God's glory out in the world and the world's praise back to God. Unfortunately, human sin distorted and disfigured this divine image. It kept us from fulfilling our vocation. But God would not give up on us. He called Abraham and his descendants and promised that all the peoples of the world would be blessed through him. Israel then took up this calling. Through their faithfulness to the covenant, they were to stand out like a light in the darkness and draw all the nations into fellowship with God and back into their God-given vocation. But we know the rest of the story, and it didn't exactly go that way. The pattern we see repeated over and over again was God rescues Israel, Israel disobeys God and suffers for it, they cry out to God for help, so God delivers Israel, and the pattern repeats. After a while, the story begins to seem a little hopeless. Every time God delivers his people, they promise to be faithful, and we can't help but think to ourselves, I wouldn't bet on it. 
we know they're fighting a losing battle because we know from our own experience that willpower is no match for a heart prone to wander. Israel couldn't fulfill its vocation because Israel's light had been darkened by sin. They needed God to step in and act, to show the strength of his arm, to deliver his people. But if the source of the problem is human sin, we might think, why couldn't God just forgive? Why does Isaiah speak of the need for someone to bear our iniquities? Now, it's easy to talk about forgiveness, but real forgiveness is costly. It's, it's costly because our actions have real consequences. And we all know this from our own experience. When someone wrongs you by theft or violence or emotional trauma, you have only two options. You can either make them pay through justice or revenge, or you can forgive them. And if you choose to forgive them, the consequences of their actions don't magically disappear, as we all know. Rather, you bear the consequences yourself. This is one reason why God has always promised justice and mercy. They are both necessary for genuine forgiveness, and they're both expressions of God's love. Now, we understand God's promise of mercy, that, we will, that he will make a way to restore us to relationship with him, even if we don't deserve it. But God's promise of justice is just as important, that evil will not ultimately triumph, even if we're the ones who do it. In Isaiah's servant song, we see a powerful and mis mysterious vision of how God will satisfy both his mercy and his justice. Around the time Isaiah was writing, Israel thought that what they really needed was for God to fight for them, to bear his powerful arm and take care of their enemies once and for all. In this poem, however, Isaiah points to the startling and unexpected truth that the power of God's arm is not the power to crush our enemies, but the power to be crushed by our fiercest enemy, namely sin to do the costly work of forgiveness by bearing the consequences we deserved but could not bear ourselves, to make possible a restored and renewed relationship to God. And so we sense in the language of the New Testament the great joy and amazement of the first Christians who saw that in the death of Jesus this great paradox had finally been resolved. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. They saw in his death God's promise to bring both justice and mercy, to display his righteousness, his justice, by being both just and the justifier of the ungodly. And this is really the reason why Christianity is a religion of grace. At its heart, it's not about what we must do to earn God's favor, but about what God has already done to bestow his favor on the undeserving. And our gratitude for this gift of grace is meant to lead us to give our lives to him who gave his life for us. Just as Jesus became a servant for us, we too are called to be servants, not grasping at our rights, but freely laying them down for the sake of others. Just as Jesus carried our afflictions, 
we too are called to bear one another's burdens, not by telling people how they should solve their problems, tempting as that may be at times, but rolling up our sleeves, showing the world an image of God's arm whose power is made perfect in weakness and placing some of the burden on our shoulders. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls.